This is Cade Massey, Praxis Professor here at the Wharton School and co-host of Wharton Moneyball. This week, we share with you two of the interviews we did at the recent Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. The second is with Robert Hess. He's a chess grandmaster. He's a chess coach at the highest levels, and he's a commentator, one of the best-known commentators in the world of chess. And the first is Thomas Gronemark. Thomas is a throw-in coach in soccer, again, at the highest levels. He works for Liverpool, among others. These guys are true experts. It gives a little window into experts and niche expertise and how far that can take you. And they're also involved with innovation in their games. Enjoy these two conversations with Thomas Gronemark and Robert Hess. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a special edition of Wharton Moneyball at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Welcoming now onto the show Thomas Gronemark. Thomas is a throw-in coach, a throw-in coach, an increasingly popular specialization area of attention and focus in professional soccer. Thomas has helped create this space, actually. Thomas is uh, working his fifth season with Liverpool. You might have heard about those guys. He also consults to other football teams as well. Thomas, thanks for making time for us. Yeah, thanks a lot. Pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to talk with you. We're on kind of a multi-year ongoing quest to understand soccer better. We are um, passionate, rabid about American baseball, American football. And every few years we get fired up about soccer. We get pulled into the World Cup. We get pulled into Champions League. We get pulled into the Euros. And we get pulled into the analytics of it. I've refereed some papers at this conference over the years. And I've seen stuff on throw-ins in particular. What can you tell us, especially for those who don't pay as much attention, what's different about the way teams think about throw-ins now from the way they've talked about throw-ins and thought about throw-ins or practiced throw-ins or worried about throw-ins or not historically? You can say until a few years ago, uh, soccer was a really traditional sport. Like, if you ask me, way behind traditional American sports, but also other sports like, yeah, for example, I've been, been on the Danish national bobsleigh team there, and we were way ahead of, of soccer in, in, in professional soccer in Denmark and, and, and other countries when I started with my throwing coaching 20 years ago. So I think the, the approach to, to throw-ins in, in soccer has been that, oh, it was just a throw-in. It's something you just have to do, and let's see what happens. But the challenge with throw-ins in soccer is that there are normally 40 to 60 throw-ins in a match. You're using approximately 15 to 20 minutes of playing time on, on uh, throw-in-related situations in soccer out of 90. So it's actually a big, big part. But one of the signs that it's been like underestimated is that if you see a soccer match and a team lose the ball after a throw-in situation, the commentators are not saying anything. But if you do the same... With, uh, with the ball uh, at your feet in the middle of the pitch, they'll say, wow, that was bad. And it happens twice or, or, or three times. Then it'll, yeah, then it'll be, uh, you know, they'll say a lot, yeah. So, so there's a big uh, potential in, uh, in, uh, in soccer throw-ins. So you're saying here's this critical thing that happens all the time where possession is either kept or lost. And people are just not paying attention to it because it's, it's kind of a, it's kind, it's just not a, essentially not attended to. And you're saying that's in stark contrast to someone who might be dribbling the ball and loses possession. That's like a thing. And you're saying, what's the difference? In both cases, they're losing possession. And so we should pay more attention to the situations and the individuals and the plays that either help us keep possession after throw in or we lose possession. Do I have that right? 
Yeah, you're totally right. And, and one thing is to keep a loose possession. Another thing is to create chances, score a goal after your own throw-ins. But just as important uh, is the, the opponent's throw-ins because you can take the, uh, the possession from them and either uh, create a chance and score a goal there. So, so there are so many situations not used well enough. But that, that's my speciality. So I'm glad you're helping us even on this super basic level because when we think of throw-ins to the unsophisticated soccer fan we don't know all of the strategy that's going on with the players or we're thinking you know very special situations like down around the goal a lot of throw-ins are just like middle of the field but you're saying even in those situations that's an opportunity for a play and if you're on defense it's an opportunity for a takeaway so you're so now that we have that right tell us give us an example of something you're coaching a team to do or have coached a team to do or, or a way that teams literally what they do concretely differently in those situations now yeah i'll say first of all there's been a tendency that that players are not moving at all uh, when when there's a throw in uh, and then it's really hard to create space and if there's been some movement it's only been individual space creation where a player just run back back and forth for for himself or herself with a cut or something like that you can create a little only a little bit of space but i work for example with team space creation war where two three four players out on the pitch are creating space together so it means that we have a higher quality of space so even when you have a throw in at your own penalty area you can you can keep possession but also sometimes switch the play or find some open space in the middle or diagonal or do big boxes up the line and so so you can you can actually go from your own penalty area and then 100 yards up the pitch and score a goal yes it's not happening every time but sometimes the possession can also just give you control of the play and i have like some some people are treating throw-ins like 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 a traditional set piece in soccer, where like corners and free kicks or 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 playbook in American football. But I'm treating like I learn the players the basics first with with basic team space creation, precision, throwing further, another throw-in tools. Then the second thing is small-sided games where they're learning to do my tools effectively and understand them, work together, create space. And then the last thing is is, is the three different zones. And on that way, the players can, yes, they can still do like set up plays, but I'm learning my players to read the game. So in theory, when we have a throw in, let's say in the middle of the pitch, then my teams have maybe 15 basic options, but these basic options can be made in thousands of ways because of different number of players, different angles, different timing and things like that. So I'm learning the players to read the game, see the opponent defending pattern and then take a decision and yes maybe it, it doesn't work every time but for example I took Liverpool from be- the season before I came they were number 18 in the Premier League out of 23rd last with a possession on throw-ins under pressure where the players are marked with a possession on 45.4% but in my first season we 18-19 we improved to 68.4% and went from number 18 in the Premier League to number 1 in the Premier League also to number 2 in the whole Europe just after one of my other teams uh, FC Midtjylland from Denmark yeah, and I mean, I, I think the throw, it, it makes, I mean, again, what, the way you're presenting this, it, it kind of, uh, it, it, it gives me the sort of insight that, you know, throw-ins, uh, basically part of why um, they are kind of unique is that it's sort of a, you know, it's a very continuous game, but that it is a pause moment where you can kind of get strategic about how the player, you know, the, it's not a re, it's not like an in-play kind of situation where the players kind of have to react what's going on. There can be kind of more of a proactive strategy to whatever you're doing the throw-in. And maybe that's where it becomes kind of analogous to a set piece, but obviously not maybe, uh, you know, not 
by definition close to the goal goal or anything like that. So how much of it is sort of like evaluating which players are particularly good in kind of throw-in situations versus, you know, an actual sort of like multiplayer strategy for where you want the ball to go with a throw-in? You can say it's, it's actually everything. I take everything in consideration. And one of the things I take in consideration is the team's formation, the, the team's playing style. It can be, of course, very different from team to team. I also really look at a thing I call the opponent's defending patterns. It means that how is the uh, opponents generally marking but also marking in, in this exact throwing or how is the opponent uh, defending patterns changing while we are moving and I'm learning the players to do that so that's like from a team perspective then on the other hand I have a thing called individual throwing superpowers it just means that different players have different skills so it means that some players are really fast you can get it behind the defense some players have a good first touch it could be really, really good to make return pass with them or give them in the middle we also have players who are strong who can protect big boxes it's better to use them than weak players then we have space creators too for example who can create space not only for themselves but especially for uh, the teammates so so i'm both taking individual skills uh, in consideration team skills and then of course we have to throw itself we want to throw it to throw as far as possible so he and she can yeah sometimes in some teams use as a set piece weapon but also increase the throwing area so you can throw to more teammates but this player also has to throw precise not only to the feet into an area where a player runs or into a pocket but it could also it's also really important that a throw-in taker is a good decision maker and taker so that's important and then in the end uh, a lot of teams they say whoa it's only the the fullbacks who take the throw-ins but in my teams it's the new player who takes the throw-ins fast if there's a good opportunity if there's not they wait have patience give the ball to the fullback so yes on one hand it's complex but it can actually also be made really simple if you understand the, the my philosophy no, and it's fascinating to hear about throw-ins specifically as this kind of mixture, as you're saying, of, of, of sort of like there's advantage. Like if, if, if you have somebody that has very good reactive decision-making and can kind of see a very quick sort of opening that you do, you know, there's, there's an advantage of kind of like being very reactive and quick with the throw-in, but then recognizing situations where that's not the case and then slowing down and that presents the opportunity to kind of be a little bit more kind of strategic and involve multiple players in the play. I, are, are there other kind of situations like that in, 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 in soccer that you think could be more taken advantage of, like maybe, you know, sort of spot fouls and stuff like that? Is there a similar kind of, you know, uh, like, we, you know, opportunity for the future to kind of take some of these skills and, and development from throw-ins and adapt it to another situation? Yeah, yeah, of course. And first of all, I'll say a lot, uh, teams actually get a lot of effect by my coaching, not only in throw-ins, but, but for example, I work a lot with the fast throw-ins and it's also, also ten, always tend to give faster reactions on, on, on free kicks, faster reactions on corner kicks, faster reactions on organizing the defense. And so, of course, on throw-ins that I work specifically with, but also, so the managers, head coaches say to me, the players are saying, now we are more switched on. And it's really good, no matter what you do, to be switched on, if it's in sports, in life in general. Of course, sometimes we have to relax, but if we want to win that soccer game, that's, that's really important. So, so in the soccer itself, it, it, it transfers to many other areas. And then I'll say, of course, I have in my pocket, I have some things in soccer. For example, I've been working like secretly a lot with the goalkeepers throw out and some, some how can you say, unexpected uh, movements by the player outside but I haven't 
I haven't sold anyone yet. Yes, I've been working with the big leagues like Premier League and, and Ligue 1 in France and, and the Bundesliga too with the goalkeepers, but I'm not branding myself with that. It's only like in secret with the clubs. So I'll maybe like, like bring that out and, and that'll like change the soccer world like my throwing philosophy has done. Uh, but I'll wait a little bit. Why? You, you shouldn't play all your cards at once. So um. Wise. Deeply wise, Thomas. We thoroughly enjoy hearing from you. Thank you for making time for us today. Good luck to you and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Thomas Gronemark, throw-in coach, world football, working with Liverpool now and a number of other organizations and individuals, it sounds like. Thomas Gronemark. We are here at the 17th annual Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. We're taking in some of the panels. We're talking to old friends in the hallways. We're meeting some new folks, which is delightful. And we're picking up some interviews. Did some on the first day of the conference, doing some on the second day of the conference. Delighted now to welcome onto the show for the very first time, Robert Hess. Robert can say chess grandmaster. How about having chess grandmaster in your title? Coach and commentator. We're going to talk chess for the next 10 or 15 minutes with Robert. Robert, good morning to you. Hey, good morning. Great to be here. Thanks for being here, man. Thanks for making time for us. Uh, Tell us about chess at the Sloan Conference. People come in expecting some baseball, basketball, football, maybe some crazy edgy things like, I don't know, tennis. Pickleball. They do have pickleball. They do have pickleball today. Uh, And we've got chess. And chess seems to be kind of a theme over the years, actually. So why is that? You can blame Daryl Morey for it. Daryl's loved chess ever since uh, he was a kid. He's a huge chess fan and lover. And so it's the fifth year in a row that I've been here doing uh, a chess event at Sloan. That's really uh, fantastic. And you were, you were saying that you guys have like a little kind of like matchup or whatever uh, uh, later today. Is that right? Yeah, so it's going to be like a team match. So Daryl and I will team up, and then another professional chess player will team up with Jason Robbins, the CEO of DraftKings, and we're going to duke it out over the board. Is it a, a quicker match than usual? Is it one of the timed matches? Speed chess? Yeah, speed chess, because everyone loves speed chess. Well, it's, you know, th- this seems to be the way the world's working. Cricket is playing faster matches these days, right? Um, baseball has just changed its rules to speed things up. How much difference do you think this, the, the proliferation of cheap speed chess has made in the popularity? of chess oh it's actually helped just the game boom because people have shorter attention spans these days they just don't have as much time they're doing so many different things but speed chess is also exciting because if we're being realistic the average fan will not be able to understand everything that's going on but they want to see quick paced action and they get that in speed chess yeah, and I, I was kind of wondering, too, like, the fact that it's a, a faster a game, does that mean that there's a little bit more kind of variation in outcome? Like, if you had two people playing and it was kind of maybe a little bit of a relative mismatch, would the lesser, like, does kind of, like, having the faster pace of it introduce more kind of randomness into the outcome? Which I, I think, you know, like, from a from a kind of competitive design, you know, that's going to draw more people in, too, if it's sort of like, if the, if the better player is kind of always guaranteed a victory, that makes, I think, things a little bit less compelling. So I don't know how much, the, how much extra random the speed chess is. No, you're spot on. I think that's what scares people about chess, is that they feel that uh, in the chess world, you're playing someone who's better than you, you're going to lose all the time. But at the highest levels, we see many more decisive games in speed chess, whereas in top-level classical games of chess, those are games that could go up to seven hours, we see many more draws. People love decisive results, they don't like ties, so speed chess guarantees them that. 
What percentage of speed chess games at the high levels are decisive? Well, I don't have that stat off the top of my head, but most of them. Okay. And how long does a speed chess match last, typically? The most common uh, speed chess games you see on like chess.com are three minutes per side. So you just three minutes each, total six minutes, you get through a game in a blistering pace. Oh, good Lord. Wow, <laughs> that is fast. Is that how y'all are going to do it today? No, we're not going to be that fast today because it's a team thing. You know, we're just trying to have fun. Uh, but some of the chess gets as fast as 15 seconds per player. That's okay. At that point, barely chess, just mouse speed. But people do play at those kind of quick intervals. Are you, is it mostly going to be you trying to figure out what Daryl wants to do so you can defer to him? Is that how it's going to go for your side? Yeah, usually it's uh, – well, the, the, one of the players says a piece and the other – a player has to figure out what move to make. So if you say pawn and there are eight pawns, you got to figure out which one to go. So I'm actually not sure if Daryl will be saying the pieces or making the moves, but I know he's nervous but also super competitive and wants to win. That sounds like fun. That's great. Well, the other innovation, well, the two other innovations I'm thinking, one's not an innovation. One, the, the big innovation is uh, the is availability of computers and games online and all of that, right? That has to have made a big difference. And, and I think I've seen numbers on how many games are played on, is it chess.com? Yep. Um, it's just, it's in the millions daily, oh, right? Oh, I think crossed a b- uh, billion for the last month. Oh, my, hold on, billion in a month. Yes. Oh, my God, that's absolutely yeah. incredible. And then how, any sense of how that has changed over time? Oh, a ton. Chess is just growing and growing and growing. And part of the reason why is that when you play chess in person or when you play online, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to say, oh, basketball games are canceled. We can't go. How are you going to find a basketball game? It's Mm -hmm. different in a video game versus in in real life, whereas chess is the exact same board, Mm -hmm. 64 squares, 32 pieces, and you go at it. And then it's my understanding is that you can, if you're playing a computer, playing a simulation, you can dial up the level of competitiveness. Like you tell them how difficult you want them to other side to play and that's what you get yes and computers are way better than humans are at chess so you know we have no chance we just bow down to our uh, silicon friends and uh-huh. that's been the case for a long time but also helps people understand because you get the truth from the position in a way in sports when you watch you're rooting you're cheering but you don't know the optimal play as a fan you do in chess okay now you say optimal play but there is such a thing as style right or there's a matter of risk taking it's almost like in sports where we know there are different strategies and one may be privileged but there may be occasions to play the other is that that's the way it is in chess too yes? yeah because we're imperfect right we don't have the answers when you're playing a game mm-hmm. you're not hooked up to the engine you don't know what the best move is so i may be a risk taker and my opponent may be someone who's just more solid plays a slow maneuvering game and that's a clash of styles and that plays out in so many chess events no, that's really interesting to kind of hear because, yeah, I mean, I think one of the sort of things that's, I guess, maybe a little bit frustrating or, or limiting about evaluation of players in basketball or football is you're constantly, you, you can evaluate, the, you know, the good outcome of, of, of a play, but you don't know how kind of far from optimal or how far from design that particular outcome was. Whereas, I, I, you know, I don't know to the extent that you kind of can create like a player evaluate a chess player evaluation that's almost like deviation from optimal or something like that. I mean, that's what we would love to do in any sport but chess maybe we can kind of as you sort of said we can get a better sense of what optimal actually is you also have more controlled data in chess than pretty much any other i love sports huge sports fan i'm all into the advanced analytics 
But in chess, you have all of that information at your fingertips. You can see how much time a person spent in a given situation. You can see the, the mistakes that they make and in the types of positions they make them in. You can see in any given opening. Think about it. In chess, there are so many different moves. But I can say in this opening, that person scores worse than in that other one. So let's try to get them into that type of position. So that is how top-level players work. They prepare in advance, and they try to use all of those metrics to their advantage. Fantastic. How do you insiders feel about the Queen's Gambit? Love it. Love the it. Queen's Gambit was exceptional. Why, why, did you, why do you feel that way? Because we don't know. From the outside, it's like, oh, my God, this is such a great show. And it, and it was wildly popular, and it had to have contributed to the popularity of the sport. But as an insider, what made you like it versus often, you know, if they show a popular version of our lives, we're, like, we're picking nets, we're complaining about things, they don't quite get it right. How did you feel? Yeah, well, it did sell out all the chess boards, so that was great for the game. Uh, but I think it was pretty accurate. I mean, some of the depictions, of course, were glamorized or changed in ways. Uh, that's always a stylistic choice. But the chess itself was very accurate. The way that the actors portrayed the games and the intensity, I think, was really spot on. And I just loved everything about it, from the fashion choices to the cinematography. Uh, but I think the chess was really accurate. Okay. Okay, final question, one that's relevant across sports. We see with analytics and, and tools and evidence an ability to optimize sports in ways that haven't happened before or they happen at quicker pace. And people sometimes complain because that optimization leads to homogenization. And all the baseball teams play the same way. All, they've all played, deploy the same style or they rob the fun of the game. This is some of the stuff. We're, it's just optimization at a very quick rate. Is there anything like that going on in chess now that we can see kind of what's optimal in every situation? It definitely is because certain opening theory is seen to be, you know, the theme of the day. You have to play that. Otherwise, you're worse and your opponents know it. Uh, but that said, there are so many distinct possibilities in a game of chess. Humans can't memorize them all. And there are variations, the variants of chess, like Fisher random chess, where the back row of pieces start on different squares, the same from, you know, on each side. But that means that you can't just prepare something because you don't know when you sit down the board what you're going to get. And one more thing I want to say is that players like Hikaru Nakamura and Fabiano Karwan who are here, unlike in any other sport, while they're playing, you can hear their thoughts and understand what's going through their minds in a way that you can't in most sports. Like, how much would we love to hear what Steph Curry is thinking when he takes a uh, three-pointer from nearly half court? But in chess, you can do that. That's what's born. That's one of the big reasons why chess is becoming increasingly popular. Because they're micing them up and they're talking out loud. They're talking as they're thinking out loud. Yeah, you can go on, you know, on the Twitch and see chess players playing high-level games while talking about their moves. So you see the process happening, and you should trust the process, of course. But in this case, we see the best players and hear their thoughts, and people love that. What other game or sport do you have insights into the top players as they do their job? Terrific. Well, thank you for educating us. Thank you. You're a very effective evangelist Mm -hmm. for chess. Delighted to have a chance to spend some time with you. Have fun with the rest of the conference. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Robert Hess, chess grandmaster coach and commentator. Terrific catching up with him a little bit here. Wrapping up our time here at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. We have been around in some form for most of 48 hours now. Downtown Boston. This one at the Heinz Convention Center. They bounce between two convention centers over here. Fun couple of days. Saw some cool sessions. Probably more importantly, saw a bunch of folks. For my colleagues over here, Shane Jensen's been in for the whole thing. Adi Weiner's away the second day, but was in for the first day. For the crew, my goodness gracious, Michelle Young, Jamie Powers, absolutely vital to what we've done. Could not happen without them. And more fun because they're around for the run. 
Matty Dads, Deion Simpkins, holding it down, making the whole thing work. Many thanks to you guys, too. And thank you for listening. Come back and join us next time.